we have been blessed again to gather in the way that we are. As we often comment, surely there are those who due to illness or due to other circumstances in life would very much like to be here but cannot be. And there are others whose hearts haven't been touched in the right way so they choose not to be here. And there are others in the world who live in places where they're threatened if they do come. Aren't we blessed to be able to gather in the quietness of an hour like this one, to reflect on a portion of the Word of God, to sing to our heart's content the great praises of the God of heaven, to pray unto Him and to realize our Heavenly Father is interested in us praying to Him. We come tonight to this part of our service in which we will give some thoughts to another few chapters in the book of Revelation. I would invite you to be turning to that last book in the Bible, and for the next few moments we will highlight some matters in this overview lesson, attempting to think about the characteristics of chapters 12 through 22. I might say, by way of at least a brief comment or two, that last Sunday night we began that series of lessons, and as we did that, we certainly took care of those first 11 chapters of that book. We certainly began in the consideration of looking more interestingly at the nature, or the, at least the nature, of the features of it. May I at least begin by reminding us of some of those aspects, because they are so critical. The book of Revelation cannot be read like a narrative in chronological order. It wasn't written that way. Chapter 1, verse 1 reminds us it was signified. It was set forth in symbolic presentation. And as we read it, we of course appreciate it that way. It is meant to be perceived as a drama that presents tr truth portrayed in essence as action that takes place before us. John, what you see, write in a book. And when you and I thus read what John wrote, we can see what he saw. And in so doing, we can appreciate the truth that's presented as a result of what he saw or in the course of that which he saw. Therefore, when we picture the things that are presented, we picture them in light of the truth that is represented in that which is set forth. And so, for example, in chapter 1, when it makes reference in verses 14 to 16 about the character of one whose feet, this great image of one's feet, burnished in fire. That takes us back immediately to the Old Testament, wherein the three Hebrew children, their feet too, ended up safe in a fire in Daniel chapter 3. The reason their feet were safe is because the Lord was with them. And so too today, Jesus promised His faithful churches that He too would be with them. And that kind of promise... And that kind of great reward is certainly very meaningful. In chapters 2 and 3, again, seven churches in Asia. Those congregations were Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Sardis, Pergamos, Thyatira, and Laodicea. And one by one, as all of them are highlighted, their report cards were listed. And when you and I see what those report cards said to them, we too can make the necessary changes if that is an issue for us. But we quickly noticed that the one on the throne had a book in his hand, and it was sealed seven times. And one by one, the seals were loosed. Jesus Christ was the only one worthy to open the seals. And we noticed some amazing things that happened that foretold events from that day forward, at least in the near time. 
But as we concluded chapter number 11, we notice verse 15 read like this, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. That's a great promise. And it is a powerful reflection upon not only the thoroughness of the Lord's character in this matter, but of what you and I must do, always being faithful to Him. But tonight, as we come to chapter 12, we and us will begin our particular lesson in that way. And as we do that, we will thus appreciate, first of all, the seven churches of Asia are there listed for you by virtue of a map. And might we keep in mind that as these letters were written to those congregations, they had within them the imprint of truth needed for all congregations for all time. And thus, with that in mind, what's the great message as we come to chapter 12? As we look at chapter number 12, it begins like this. We begin in this chapter to see some rather amazing presentations. Again, imagine it. Suppose you're in an audience and you're watching events play out on a particular stage before you. John, what you see, write in a book. In this chapter, we're introduced to a dragon. For the first time in the book, we see the dragon. Now, admittedly, he's going to play a significant role all the way into chapter 20. Chapter 20. Who is the dragon? That really is one of the major issues to ask in light of the various symbols that are presented in this book. I see what the word is, we might well note, but what does it mean? What is being referenced? Who is it? that is being described in this way. When it comes to the dragon, we're not left to wonder. We observe the dragon beginning in verse 1, look down to verse 9, and observe that the dragon is identified. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil. We need not wonder who the dragon is. He's the devil. He is thus the archenemy of both man and God. And in so doing, He has wrought havoc since the days of the Garden of Eden. As we encounter Him here, we notice one more time, He opposes those who are of God. In particular, this dragon, in a rather shocking way, is waiting to devour a baby that a woman's about to deliver. The woman, we're told, is, a, is pregnant. She's about to have a child, and the dragon is waiting to consume the child. Again, we might well ask, who's the woman? Who's the child? Again, the chapter tells us much. But may I go ahead and ask you to notice, verse 5 says, She did bring forth the man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to His throne. She did deliver the child. The devil didn't get him, although he tried. This child was safe. And the text tells us that he ascended to God, and there he continues in royal splendor. You and I can begin to appreciate the devil tried his best to thwart the work of God as Christ Jesus came into the world. Remember, Herod gave command to kill all the baby boys in Matthew chapter 2, but Jesus survived. Throughout the character of his life, there were many who in fact desired to take his life. Do you recall in John chapter 8 that after a particularly challenging lesson, there were those who were ready to throw him over the ledge at the, at the edge of the city. But Jesus survived. 
There was another occasion where, it again, people desired to take his life, but he survived. I say all of that to say that the devil tried his best. And as you recall, as the moments of the cross became near, the devil did succeed in having the Lord put to death. But he died sinlessly. He died in the shedding of that blood is the thoroughfare through which our sins can be forgiven and we can one day live with Him in heaven. But may I say, who's the woman? As you look into the chapter, may I just draw to you a couple of verses. You may well appreciate that the woman in verse 6 fled into the wilderness. And later on you'll notice... In verse number 13, when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Finally, in verse number 17, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. The seed of the woman is still those who the devil is anxious to attack, anxious to, in fact, do a great unservice to. May I point out, the woman is representative of the church. That aspect of it at least reminds us it is the church today that is still the one that the devil would wish to overcome, overwhelm, and do, in fact, a great harm to. When it said that the woman fled into the wilderness, remember the years in which the church had in many ways to go into hiding in the days of the Roman Empire? Because, again, they were under attack upon it. And yet, as the woman is described this way, it's a rather interesting symbol. And it's one that leads us into chapter 13. Not only do you see the dragon as presented here, but the dragon is going to have impact in the chapters that follow, not only in himself, but in those whom he motivates. We see two of them in chapter 13. Let's look at the first one. As you begin the chapter, again, picture what you see. John, as you see, he sees a beast rise out of the water. A water beast. Now this beast is rather formidable. Verse number 1 of chapter 13 describes this beast as having seven heads and ten horns. No ordinary beast. As you reflect upon the beast, again we might ask, who is the beast? What does this beast represent? Without going into all the details, may I point out that there are descriptions in Daniel chapter 7 that have bearing upon our identification of the beast. For right now, may I invite you to notice in verse 2, the closing of that verse says, "...the dragon gave him, the beast, his power, his seat, and great authority." Whoever the beast is, he received his power from the dragon. We know that's the devil. He received the character of who he is and what he does based upon the nature of the dragon. It is with that in mind, the sea beast is one that we can now identify. Remember, the things that the Revelation contains were things that were shortly to come to pass. We are not to wait for 2,000 years for these matters to come to fruition. They had meaning for those of that day. The sea beast is the Roman Empire. It was the ones who persecuted those Christians of that day, often putting them to death because they were Christians. Some of the Roman Caesars, in fact, often did this. People like Trajan, Domitian, and others, 
they orchestrated a regime that was very hostile to Christianity. And that was going to continue, in fact, for many decades to follow. In many ways, that was to last for upwards of 250 years. How many of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ met their death due to the Roman Empire? How many of them were, in fact, greatly punished by this beast that John saw? Now, many things about that beast are highlighted. I'll simply point out to you that he operated in verse number 5 with blasphemies. He operated in greatness of power. And let's face it, in his day, the Roman Empire ruled the earth. Ferocious, strong, very demanding. As the chapter rolls onward, however, we soon learn that there were, in verse number 12 and following, great wonders that were to be seen. And interestingly enough, there's a second beast that appears. This beast is on the land. Remember, the first one was on the sea. This one was on the land. This one received its power from the first beast. This one received its character by virtue of its connection to beast number one, the sea beast. Who's the second beast? One more time, the chapter tells us enough that we can decipher the issues of the second beast. This one, the Roman church. Now notice that church did receive its power from its association to the Roman Empire. It too brought about characteristics of great suffering and challenge to the people of that day, namely the Christians. In so doing, we close the chapter by probably the single most oft-asked question in regard to the book of Revelation. It's chapter 13, verse 18. Mention is made, and it reads like this. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is six hundred, threescore, and six. Six, six, six. How many times have you and I perhaps been asked, what is the mark of the beast? What does 666 mean? You might well be aware that there are many implications that sometimes the human family has appreciated about that. Sometimes there are people who will not dial a phone number with triple sixes in order. Sometimes there are others who, due to this consideration, will make association and avoid certain things or places. What is the mark of the beast? May I say that it is in contrast in the revelation to that particular seal on the forehead of the faithful. Remember, those who are servants of God are sealed in their forehead. And God protects them, He preserves them, and He assures that they shall make it to that sweet abode beyond. Standing in opposition to them, the ones on the opposite side of that coin are those who have the mark of the beast. We've already learned who the beast is. Those who have that mark would prefer to buy and sell and get gain. They pursue the things of this earth. They pursue the matters of convenience here rather than faithfulness to God. Can you and I be guilty of that today? Absolutely. If we choose to take care of the pocketbook or to take care of other things like that rather than service to God... You and I know it's not an either-or arrangement. We can be faithful to God and be successful in business, but we must never allow business to occupy the God of our life. Those of that day were, of course, in that position. 
you could imagine they were in a somewhat more difficult position. Because again, the two beasts were those who were the ones controlling the things of that day. You and I can go to a grocery store, or we can grow a little garden and have plenty of things to eat. Quite often in that day, they obtained their food items by going to the marketplaces. The problem was this. The Romans controlled the marketplaces. And it wasn't unusual for the Roman Caesar to have a statue of himself as you enter the marketplace, and unless you bow down to the Caesar, you would not be allowed entrance. So consider the decision that had to be made. Do I bow down and thus violate what Jesus would require of me, but I am at least able to buy the food I need for myself and my family, or do I refuse to bow down? Therefore, I'm not granted interest, but I will stay loyal to Jesus. Which will it be? You can imagine the decision that many of them had to make. The beast, the number of the beast. Notice again is the number of a man. It's the number that goes along with the needs and the particulars of the human frame. As you and I launch into chapter 14, you notice that we are invited to consider one more time a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Revelation frequently moves us from what looks to be so dark and dreary in one chapter and calls us to the heights of the blessing of God in the next. In the previous chapter, beasts and the mark of a beast. Of Now in chapter 14, we sweetly see Jesus and His followers. We again notice the 144,000. We saw them first back in chapter 7. There, it was they who had been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's they who were ready to meet God in judgment. It's the same group here. But this time, we notice that they are described in some very interesting ways. Verse number 4. They, these are they which were not defiled with women. For they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. They were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Do you begin to see some of the difficulties that come with taking these absolutely literally? The text says they're virgins. If I take that literally, you might then appreciate then that nobody's ever had sexual relations or go to heaven. Is that what that says? Well, clearly not. That word is being used here in a description of purity. Those who have given their life in faithful service to the Lord. Notice it said they're redeemed. Their sins have been forgiven. And did you notice? They follow the Lamb whithersoever He goes. They walk in the footsteps of Jesus even through challenging times. They walk in the footsteps of Jesus even through moments of challenge and difficulty from those without Him within. But they follow the Lamb whithersoever He goes. As chapter 14 sweetly then tells us, we begin readily to see that there is now seven angels that each one has a vial, a bowl, and they're going to pour out these bowls. And thus we encounter seven vials. These vials contain the wrath of God, and it's going to be poured out on those who are justly deserving of it. So please take note, the faithful will not be the recipients of the seven vials. These are poured out on the unfaithful, poured out on those who are rebellious to God, disobedient to Him. 
And so it is in verse in chapter 15, verse 1, we see a glassy sea, verse number 2. And the text says, And I saw as it were a sea of glass, mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass. Don't you just thrill at that image? We've talked about the beast. We've talked about the mark of the beast. We've given discussion to those influenced by the beast. And yet here John sees this glassy sea before the throne of God. And there are some standing on it. Standing on the glassy sea. Who are they, John? It's those who have not bowed to that image of the Caesar. It's those who have not obtained that mark of the beast. It's those who've been loyal and true to God in every way. Isn't that a great encouragement to you and me? Don't we want to stand on that glassy sea? Because I'm going to go ahead and give away some of chapter 20. They'll not be on the sea anymore. They will have crossed over the sea and be in the absolute presence of the throne of God. That's where we want to be. At this point, chapter 15, it says this about them. Verse 3, They sing the song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. These on that sea sing a song with two stanzas. First, the song of Moses. You and I probably remember that beautiful song that he sang in Deuteronomy 32. It's a song that highlighted the victory the children of Israel had enjoyed over their enemies. They were within a month's time of entering the promised land. How joyous, how thankful, how full of gratitude they were. This song referenced here is a reminder of how good God has been. But then you notice the second stanza is this, the song of the Lamb. We identified the Lamb back in chapter 5, Jesus Christ. You and I know that our salvation hinges upon the Lord, hinges upon His faithfulness, the blood that He shed, and the redemption we can enjoy in His blood, Ephesians 1 verse 7. Is it any wonder as we close that chapter then, we are now ready to look at what happened when the vials are poured out. Remember, the angel is going to pour out a bunch of vials. Chapter 16, verse number 1 says, I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God. It's time to pour it out. May I be quick to say, surely no one in his right mind would want to be the recipient of these vials. Because again, it's God's wrath, not His mercy, not His love, not His favor, but His wrath. As these vials are poured out one by one, there's a great deal of destruction, a great deal of hardship, a great deal of pain, and a great deal of challenge. I would say, though, that without doubt, the thing that is most well known about chapter 16 is verse 16. Could I point you to that verse? And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. It's the only time in the Bible that word appears. And yet it has become the centerpiece of premillennial consideration. We're told that when the Antichrist appears, that he will have his way for some seven years, and near the end of the seven-year period, Jesus Christ himself will return, so we're told, and He will defeat 
the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. Now, that's what we're told. That's what the Zionists would like us to believe. But that's not what the chapter teaches. The Bible doesn't teach premillennialism. And yet, as you look at this, this is in the midst of a discussion. And might I invite you to notice there's a beatitude that occurs right after it. Verse 17. I'm sorry, it's verse 15, the verse before it. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. It might well be a lesson for another time, but there are seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. That was one of them. A blessing is pronounced in this instance upon those who are watchful, those who keep his garments, those who are walking in a pure and undefiled way, those who have been true to the Lord, and they will not be the recipients of the vials. May I again say, surely all of us would want to be in that number, those who are not recipients of the vials of God's wrath. And yet in that particular verse, doesn't that quickly remind us of that Jesus encouraged us to be watchful? Matthew 25, verses 13 and following. Jesus encouraged us to be alert, to be vigilant, to always be mindful of the ongoing onslaught of the devil. And yet, as you and I close chapter 16, we notice that this discussion here has much to do with the Old Testament and our understanding. The word Armageddon simply means hill of Megiddo. It has a reference to a significant number of events that happened there, some of which were good, some of which were not for the people of Israel. Isn't it going to be that way on the Day of Judgment? For those who are ready... It will be the grandest of all days. For those not ready, it will be the sorest of all possible days. It takes us back to Revelation 6, 17, doesn't it? When those unready will cry for the mountains and rocks to fall on them because of the wrath of the Lamb. You and I surely want to be watchfully prepared and ready. Chapter 17 unfolds for us the identity of the defeat of Babylon. It would be well for us to remember that Babylon was a key figure in the Old Testament. She persecuted the people of God. Remember, it was the Babylonians who burned Jerusalem to the ground in 586 B.C. It was the Babylonians who, in fact, were those who persecuted and took God's people captive for 70 years in this particular chapter, in a figurative way, Babylon is destroyed. Now, who's the Babylon in the book of Revelation? Who is this? We aren't left to wonder. It's described as the city of seven hills. Rome was built on seven hills. We're talking about the Roman Empire again. But the language that John utilized to present it, and the language in which it was revealed, of course, was language that Christians could come to appreciate, but others would not. It's almost as if it was written in a coded language so that if a typical Roman person were to obtain this and read it, they wouldn't know what it was talking about, though it was talking about them. But those who knew the Old Testament and those who knew the teaching of the Christ would appreciate what this was about. That empire that persecuted Christians so much was soon to meet its end. 
their cause, the cause of Christianity, would rise above the opposition of the Roman Empire. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. In fact, you notice those words occurring in this chapter. As Babylon is described in this way, notice particularly verses 5 and following. You might notice that some of the language is even in all capital letters, at least in some translations of the Bible. The destruction continues on into the next chapter, Revelation 18. There you notice some of the features about that destruction, some of the issues that were of no benefit. May I call to your attention, particularly verses 5 and following, perhaps highlighted in the words that you'll notice on this next slide with me. As you look at chapter number 18, we find a tremendous victory. Although the Roman Empire fell, the cause of Jesus Christ marched onward. You and I today are some of the blessed recipients of that truth. The Roman Empire has long since ceased to be, but the cause of God has marched. In fact, has triumphed. In Revelation 17, 14, we see the beautiful pronouncement. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He still rides supremely on that white horse of truth. There's a picture in that chapter of the one who rides the white horse. That's Jesus. He's the great conqueror of all places and time. It might well be then in chapter 18, what couldn't save the Roman Empire? Their money. They were wealthy. They were rich. But yet all their riches came to naught. Note verses 12 to 17. And in one hour... It was all gone. May I say, that helps to remind us that it won't be the size of our bank account that gets us into heaven. On that day, it won't be our funding or our wealth in that way. Our wealth will need to be wealth that's already been laid up there. Matthew chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. As chapter number 18 draws to its conclusion, there's a sweet description again about those who did have victory. The faithful, of course, are the people of God. And therefore, we come to chapter number 19. A beautiful scene is presented. A scene of a marriage supper. Now you may pause to ask, what's this all about? We've each appreciated, I suppose, a reception right after a wedding, and we know what that's about. It's a celebration of this new family that's been, in fact, joined. A man and his wife. Well, what is the marriage supper here? We don't have to read very far to learn. In verses 5 and following, may I invite your attention. A voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye His servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. The Lamb, we know who that is, Jesus. Who's his bride? Second Corinthians 11 verse 3 said it's the church. The book of Revelation will say the same. May I say we are now to the point of reaching the point where the day of judgment is now about to take place. And the Lamb who is the Lord, 
will be forever joined with his wife, who's the church. Aren't we told in Second in First Corinthians fifteen twenty four that Jesus will hand the church over to the Father? All of that comes together here, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so notice verse eight. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So the saints are those comprising the church and those who are the bride. Did you notice how they're clothed? We're all well aware that a bride adorns herself in such exquisite apparel, beautiful white, as she prepares for the day of her wedding. Notice here, the bride also is properly adorned, but what is it that she's adorned with? It says, the righteousness of saints. Clean, pure, holy, righteous living. That's how you go to heaven. You obey the Lord and you live the way you're supposed to live. And in so doing, you're able to sit down and enjoy the sweetness of that marriage supper of the Lamb. But may I say that the chapter ends by describing those who are not invited to that marriage supper. I wonder who those were. If the marriage supper is those who are the saints of God, those equipped in righteousness, who, I wonder, are those not invited? And the answer is obvious. Those not the faithful. Those who have chosen not to serve the Lord. And the chapter ends by describing them in some of the darkest most gruesome ways in all the book of Revelation. It talks about their eyes being gouged out. It talks about the other aspects of their being holy in matters of pain and undue service. May I say, verse number 20 closes it like this. The beast was taken, and we remember who the beast was, the Roman Empire, the Roman Church, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worship his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. We've reached the day of judgment. We've reached the events that will transpire relative to those not coming to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Chapter 21, I'm sorry, chapter 20, then moves us into that which follows. You and I can appreciate, we can summarize it like this. There are those who die once and do not suffer the second death. Now all of us know that if the Lord delays His coming, we're going to die once. But we do not want to have anything to do with the second death. But there are those who will die twice. They'll die physically, but then they're going to die the second death as well. And this chapter describes it. The second death is being cast into hell. Oh, we don't want any part of that one. Some have described it like this. You and I are twice born, but will die once. There are others who are in the other category. They're born once, but die twice. You and I want to be twice born people. We are born, of course, physically from the womb of our mother, but we're born again under the banner of the character of obedience to the gospel. We're born, you see, into the family of God, described in John chapter 1. Tonight, as you look at chapter 20, might we go ahead and notice how it ends. Some of the most graphic descriptions of all about the day of judgment. It goes like this. I'll start in verse 10. 
And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So isn't it true that not only is the dragon going to be there, and not only are the beasts there, and not only the false prophets, but did you notice? Every person whose name is not in the book of life will be cast in the same place. How vital is it that our name be in the book of life? With that said, only two chapters are left in all of the 1,189 chapters of the Bible. Revelation 21 and 22. At this point, the dust has now begun to settle. Those cast into hell are there, and you and I in the two chapters of the Bible that are left are given a picture, a portrait of those who are the saved. Where are they? And what is it like where they are? Revelation 21.4 says that where they are, there's no sorrow, there's no death, there's no pain, there's no crying. There's nothing that defiles Revelation 21, 27. The glory of God fully lights where they are. There's no need for the sun or the moon. The glory of God's the only temple they ever need. They're in par- they're, they are in a place of bliss, a place of exquisite glory, a place where God and the Son and the Spirit all are reigning in absolute supremacy. You may notice in verse number 8 of that same chapter, among those not there are the fearful, the unbelieving, murderers, those that are abominable, all of those who are fornicators, and all of those who love a lie. None of those people are there. At that point, Revelation 21 closes and only one chapter is left. Revelation 22. We're given a continued description about a a consideration that brings us full circle in the Word of God. It's absolutely amazing to consider it. The book of Genesis begins in chapter 3 and chapter 2 with reference to the the tree of life. The tree of life. Adam and Eve had access to it in the garden. They could eat of it and live forever. But of course they messed up. They chose to sin. They lost access to that tree in Genesis 3.24. And yet, what Adam and Eve lost, the faithful of God again have. They have access to the tree of life. What we lost in Adam, we gained through Jesus. How the Bible begins in Genesis 2 and 3, it ends in Revelation 22. It's a beautiful record. In this chapter, the faithful in heaven have access to that tree of life, and it bears fruit every month. You don't have to wait once a year for it to bear fruit. It's always available because in that place you'll never die. You never get old. You never deteriorate. You never wear out. It's always new. 
It's always refreshing. It's always enlivening. How do you get there? Revelation twenty two fourteen tells us. That verse reads as follows, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may, may enter in through the gates into the city. You get to heaven by doing the commandments of the Lord. You get to heaven, you see, as that verse reminds us, that as you have entrance into that city, you'll have access to the tree of life. Eternal life. That's what Revelation sets before us, that it tells us how to get there. I might say there's a tremendous invitation extended in verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. Let him that's a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus says, Whosoever will. Sometimes we change that up and say, Whosoever won't. May we never do that. Whosoever will, the Lord invites one and all to come. We have to bend our will to His, doing His commandments, washing our robes, and looking forward to the greatness of that moment and that day. We've ended the revelation and maybe one final thought, and the lesson will be yours. The book ends with a tremendous set of promises, and quite frankly, somewhat of very serious ones at that. There's a warning that to those who would add to this book, to them will be added the plagues described in this book. But we notice those plagues back in chapter 16, those connected to the seven vials poured out by the angels. Surely no one would want them, so that means we'd better not add anything to the, to, to the book of Revelation or to any of the others. But by the same token, he said that those who would take away from this book will have their names taken out of the book of life. Well, that means they'll be lost too because we've already learned in chapter 20 that unless your name's in the book of life, you'll be cast into the lake of fire. How sweet is the Word of God, not adding anything to it, not taking anything from it. God gave it to us as He intended it to be. As we close the Revelation, there's one slide of invitation that's left. I've described it like this. The revelation, in many ways, is the icing on the proverbial biblical cake. We, throughout the book, have seen God's great promises and rewards, and they come to fruition in many ways in the panorama of this book. John, what you see, write in a book. And he saw the saved, able to not just be on the glassy sea, but on the other side, near the throne of God. And they had access to the tree of life. And they reigned with God throughout all the endless ages of eternity. But those who were not in that category were not able to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they found themselves in a lake burning with fire and brimstone. The Bible ends that way. As one final reminder that urges us to be faithful. Urging us to always be in the faithfulness of the nature of the Bride of the Son of God. Tonight, as you and I examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it asks us to note this. You and I too can overcome Satan, self, and sin and do exactly what they did in Revelation 12, 11. It means using the blood of Christ, the Word of God, and the absolute commitment to the truth of heaven, and that is 
something which the devil cannot overcome. Tonight, if you need to respond to the gospel's call of invitation, it's certainly such that Jesus still says, Whosoever will, let him come. He invites you to come. If you would wish to become a Christian, what you must do is not up to you or me. It's the Lord's business. He said you must believe in Jesus, John 8, 24, with all of your heart. You must repent of your sins, commanded in Luke 13, 3. You must confess the marvelous name of the Son of God under the banner of Matthew 10, verses 38-39. And then you must be baptized for the remission of your sins, taught by Jesus in Mark 16, 16. If you have done that but haven't been true to that way of life, that calling, then you have forfeited at this point at least the promises that are promised in the Revelation, but you can come back to your first love. Tonight, if you again would like to put, have your name placed in that book of life, you just have to repent of those sins and confess them. The Lord's promised to forgive them. And tonight, we'd be happy to pray for you. If we could be of help in any of these ways tonight, we, like the Lord, would urge you to come. While together we stand and while we sing.